Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Perhaps you, like I, are increasingly, or feeling increasingly displaced in our current climate. I feel like I'm in the middle of a war, and I don't belong to either side, and I'm not sure where my place is. I don't like that feeling. You? Our place, both sociologically and geographically, matters for our humanity, much more than we tend to believe. We belong somewhere, and we feel a sense of being lost if we're not in the right place or with our people. I joked that my family was exiled to South Carolina for a while. I joke, but it's not a joke, because being where you don't belong, that's sort of feel that way. It feels like an exile. I clearly remember a moment in around 2008 when we were sitting in an airport in Tampa, Florida, waiting for a thunderstorm to pass, which can take a long time in Florida. So we could board a flight that would, after a brief stop in New York, land in Edinburgh, Scotland, where we were living at the time. And in that moment, it struck me that we were leaving our family behind in the U.S. We were going home, but we were also leaving home. And I felt this strong sense of displacement, of loss, of confusion. Where do I belong? Where is home? Where are my people? These days, someone is more likely to relocate to a new city due to political or ideological conflicts than they are because they have a new job. That may be only slightly an exaggeration. And again, fear in this culture war that we're in has reached epic proportions, and many are willing to take significant and in some cases drastic actions in response. What a world we are living in right now, you know? But lest we immediately dive into an unprovoked rant right here at the beginning of the sermon, we should exercise some caution. Especially when we start to evaluate our cultural moment that we, we shouldn't begin to opine for those non-existent good old days, right? That were never really as good as our memory suggests they were. Further, if we were to attempt to recover the good old days, it would make us profoundly discontent with where we are now, unable to see or experience any beauty in the world. Beyond this, during the so-called good old days, whatever we think those might be, Christians and others felt this same sense of displacement that you and I are feeling now, just around different forces, different issues. So what we're going through isn't new. Every generation has been keenly aware that Christ and culture are strange bedfellows. Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best may have tricked us into thinking that Christianity and its dominant values were safely lodged within the hearts and minds of society during that time. 
But we have to recall that the turmoil of the 60s and 70s emerged from those who lived in the 50s. Whatever that decade may have appeared to be externally, there was within that generation the protest that life was not as grand as TV portrayed to be. Battles for our society and collective consciousness needed to be fought, they said. And we're still feeling the ripple effects of that time period. Who can tell the depth of the impact of that time on our world? But there's lots to say. What we can say for sure is that there is no good old days for the Christians. The kingdom of God cannot and should not be equated with any one specific cultural moment. That is to say, Christianity, in its truest form anyway, is a kingdom not of this world. As Jesus put it. Now, what did he mean by that? Did he mean that it's disconnected from this world and exists somewhere else so that Jesus' saving effort is nothing more than a mass jailbreak to get us out of here and away from this nonsense? Now, that's not the tone of the New Testament. Did he mean that his kingdom, okay, it's connected to this world, but it doesn't arise from within this world? And it comes to us from an unseen world. Yeah, that makes some more theological sense. But I believe there's even more to it that's relevant for us. As Jesus spoke those words of Pilate, we're cognizant of the fact that he doesn't deny Pilate's implication. Yes, he is king of the Jews. And we're also cognizant that he makes the claim while he faces torture, and execution by the current superpower of the day. Thus, my kingdom is not of this world must mean as well that the expression of Jesus' kingdom, the life, the politics, the order of it, the way it feels, how we move around in it, the essence of God's kingdom on earth fundamentally contrasts with Pilate's kingdom. That is crucial to understand. But both are kingdoms. Both are political. Now, you might like political talk. You might hate it. You might be somewhere in between. You might have a tolerance of about five minutes. Okay. Regardless, Christians have to face politics. Jesus' kingdom is not anti-political, nor is it apolitical, nor is it purely political, at least not in the way we think of being political. His kingdom is a polis, a city, a city that's set on a hill in contrast to Pilate's kingdom, to Pilate's city. It's political, but it's not politics as usual. His kingdom is not of this world, in that the citizens of his kingdom, and get this, respond to the pressures of life in unexpected and counterintuitive ways. See, the kingdoms of this world see life in terms of power structures, enemies, wars, victories, and defeats. Conflict is at the heart of the earthly politics. It's what animates and drives both the internal 
and external structures of a society. And conflict gets settled where? That's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> where are on the battlefield? Conflicts get settled on the battlefield, whether they be a literal battlefield or a metaphorical. Not so with God's kingdom. Now, to be sure, there are battles being fought and battles to fight for the Christian. They feel weighty and consequential, and frankly, they feel unwinnable to us, like we're pushing water uphill. What do we do? How does the Christian respond to what feels like this unwinnable culture war? Well, now that's the question, isn't it? And I've bitten off more than I can chew. And we're all going to leave dissatisfied, not only because of what I say, but because of what I leave unsaid today. Okay, so be it. Well, let's let Samuel guide us a little bit. He has something to say to our cultural moment. Now, unfortunately, for those of you who dislike history, I have to give you a little run-up to chapter 7, a little bit of the history. We didn't read chapters 4, 5, and 6. You're welcome. But I need to summarize it, okay? Or you won't get 7. Israel is camped near a place called Ebenezer, and the Philistines are at Aphek. The Philistines attack the Israelites and kill about 4,000 men. Terrible loss. The elders of Israel were bewildered at this because they were God's people. So clearly, they're not meant to lose these battles against these barbaric Philistines. If their God is the true God, it doesn't make sense that he wouldn't overcome their enemies. It doesn't make sense that he wouldn't crush them and set things right. Right? Right. So to make sure they win the next battle, they bring out the big guns. The lead pastors come out to the battlefield. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, priests. They bring the Ark of the Covenant itself to the battlefield. And the author of Samuel sets us up. Imagine you're reading it for the first time. This is what he says. So they sent men to Shiloh. That's where the ark was. They sent men to Shiloh to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord of heaven's armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Not just the ark, but let me tell you, that's the ark. The Lord of heaven's armies. He's coming out of the battlefield. And you, as a first-time reader, and just like the Israelites go, oh yes, now it's going to happen. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. You Philistines outwitted us at Aphek, which is just like you ignorant barbarians, but now we've got you. God's going to get you. That's right. God's going to get you, and we'll make sure of it. Because his throne is on the battlefield itself. And if his throne is leading the charge, he certainly won't let you destroy him. And if we're crouching behind him, well, then we're good too. I mean, this is their ace in the hole, right? 
If we can't crush our enemies on our own, let's have God beat them over the head. Conflict, after all, is set up on the back. Someone has to win. And the way to win is to crush the enemy. Right? I hope in parallel in your mind you're thinking about our current day. The Philistines are terrified of this development. They know who this God is. They know what he did in Egypt. And in their fear and desperation, the scripture says that they fought fiercely. And the slaughter was even greater than before. This time, 30,000 men instead of the 4,000, including the deaths of the lead pastors, Eli's sons. And worst of all, the ark is captured by the Philistines and taken away. God has departed Israel. The latter half of chapter 4 tells the story of the birth of Eli's grandson, who was named Ichabod, because the glory of the Lord had departed. Now, imagine yourself there in an epoch when it was assumed that the gods fought for your nation or fought for your army. This loss had to have been terrifying and bewildering to Israel. Had to have been. If our God is the one who brought the plagues and part of the Red Sea, has he grown old? Tired? Has he met his match? They had played their ace and had lost. Now what? Chapter 5 relates the story rather humorously of what happens when the Philistines possess the ark. Dagon, their god, literally can't stand up in his own temple with the ark there and keeps falling down. And the people of Ashdod, and then Gath, become sick with tumors and they die. Maybe the bubonic plague, we're not for sure. But in any case, a tragedy. So they take the ark out of Ashdod and Gath, and they decide to send it to another city, to Ekron. The people of Ekron see the ark coming from a distance, and they run out and like, no, thank you. We don't need this. And a very interesting phrase at this point. Their cries rose to heaven. Fascinating to me. Caught my eye. I wonder why the author included that phrase. I mean, maybe he just meant they yelled very loudly. Maybe that was one of Maybe it was a way of saying God heard them. That's how the phrase often appears in Scripture. And the Philistines are not entirely sure how to repent or ask Yahweh for forgiveness, but they know something's not right, something has to change. So they cry out to heaven and they take action. And through a series of events, they send the ark back to Israel, along with, strangely, interestingly, five gold tumors and five gold rats. Again, you're going to play maybe. Representing the five Philistine cities. And they send it as a guilt offering to Yahweh. What a strange development. And the author tells us that once the ark comes back to Israel territory, Israelite territory, that the guilt offering and the ark were placed on a large stone 
at Beth Shemesh, and that stone still stands as a witness today, the author says, of it all. Philistine repentance and a great stone to to memorialize. So far, so very good, right? Maybe things are in order now. When the ark returned to Israel at Beth Shemesh, they had a great celebration. Dozens of sacrifices were offered, and in the middle of this wonderful worship service, which you can imagine what a celebration that was, God has returned. In the middle of it, 70 Israelite men decided to take a peek inside the ark. You know what happened to them? That was that. God killed them. Seems a bit harsh, especially in the middle of church. Surely the men just wanted to get closer to God, right? To know what it's like to experience divine power, the kind that had devastated the Philistines. I mean, can you blame them? We talk all the time in our evangelical churches about getting closer to God. I don't think we have any idea what that means. They wanted to get close to God, and God said, back off. I'm beginning to get the impression in Samuel and throughout the Bible that while God possesses Israel, Israel does not possess God. Now that is a crucial point to make for us. Israel cannot use God to accomplish their own ends, even if it's in the middle of the church. You know the old hymn, I am his and he is mine? Do you get a good feeling when you sing that song? I guess I know what they mean. But maybe I am his, full stop. Maybe just that. We Americans are a practical bunch. We're not very interested in philosophizing or pondering the deeper questions of life, unless they give us some quick solutions to solving a problem or making us money. And I've got to hand it to us. We've done a pretty good job of all that. Benjamin Franklin and William James are deep in our demand. And the contemporary church in this country has fallen right in line with that mindset. We love to talk about ourselves and how Jesus and his practical down-home wisdom can make our lives immensely more comfortable and happy. I sat across the table from a pastor of a mega church once and said, you know, I said this, I believe church is more about what God wants to get out of us than what we get out of him. But you should have seen his response. He shook his head and said, don't tell any of my elders that. They will lose their minds. And I find that telling. It reveals a sinister disorientation that has infected the church. And we find in Samuel that the virus has been with us for a very long time indeed. We think we possess God. That he's put himself at our disposal for practical and efficient use. 
We believe that God is our power keg, as it were, for crushing our enemies and getting our earthly kingdom established. We think we're charging up the hill to dethrone Herod and Pilate, to run roughshod over the Philistines. We think we win our wars by unleashing God on our enemies and making ourselves co-regents with them. But God is not into that sort of war making. He's not a weapon to be wielded by his angry followers who are tired of living in exile. The anger of men does not accomplish the righteousness of God, St. James tells us. Twenty years the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim, while the Israelites mourned what they understood as God's departure. And then seemingly out of nowhere, Samuel starts preaching. I don't know why he waited 20 years. Not sure why he picked this time as the right moment. Samson was a contemporary of Samuel during this period. So perhaps Samson's personal heroics had sparked something in the people. They were ready to listen. Samuel's sermon is interesting. Remember, they were mourning because they believed God had abandoned them. But Samuel says, if you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, repent. Did you catch that? God had not gone anywhere. They had. And he says, come back. Okay, I've been rambling for a while. Let me see if I can connect some dots and land this plane. There's no doubt we are in a battle, but it's not a battle for control over the Supreme Court or for enacting legislation or against someone in some segment of our society. It's not that kind of battle. Think about it if it were. If we won all of that, we got everything we wanted in society. And we forced everyone to conform to our will. Would we have the kingdom of God at that point? We would not. We'd simply have a bunch of people conforming to our will in order to avoid whatever consequences there might be. And that's not the gospel. It might be the gospel with a gun in your head, which is not the gospel. Sisters and brothers, our fight is not with flesh and blood. We are in a battle against the unseen forces of darkness that are constantly pulling us away from the joy of life and union with God. And the more we grind our teeth at our political opponents, and the more we bury ourselves in tabloid journalism, the further away we drift from the power and peace of word and sacrament and life within the body of Christ. That's what the battle is. Did you hear what Jesus prayed for in John 17? Sanctify them. Sanctify them. And so they will be sanctified. I am sanctifying myself. He didn't pray for the world. He prayed for us so that his life would be in us. Some strange reason 
with all the darkness in our world, we're not called to attack it head on and crush the troublemakers. We're told to divert our attention away from the battle and instead repent and obey and love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. This is the Jesus way, the way of the cross, the way of repentance, the way of obedience, the way of love. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not saying that we never take any action in this world in the face of evil and just sit in a corner and pray. I'm not saying that. Don't walk out here, up here today, and say, Curtis says we can't do anything. The only thing I can do is just pray. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the darkness we see in the world is not the source of the problem. The problem is the unseen forces of darkness. And God wants his people to repent and grow in grace and holiness so that those unseen forces lose their grip on us and on our world. And that we begin to see the life and the beauty and the joy of the kingdom of God in Christ. Part of our job here is to be priests for the world to have our lives sanctified in such a way that God hears our prayers for them so that that darkness will be defeated. I know it's complicated. It's a complicated matter to apply. I've only said one thing about this very complex issue for our day. I get it. I began by describing the tension I feel in the current cultural moment, our cultural world. I feel like I don't belong anywhere. I'm not sure how to fight this battle. I'm not sure what to do, but I can do this. I can repent. I can obey. I can love God and neighbor with all my heart and all that that means. And who knows what victory God might bring through people like that. Thanks be to God. All right.